This week in KMA Land, arguments heard in Fremont County wind energy lawsuit. Legislators attend trainer banquet. Bills County seeks purchase of current Veterans Affairs Office. Cass County supervisors approve farmland sale and competitors announced in second annual Shendig Barbecue Competition. I'm Mike Peterson. This week's episode of As the Turbine Turns took place in a Fremont County courtroom as oral arguments were presented in a preliminary hearing regarding a wind energy lawsuit in Fremont County. Multiple pretrial motions were filed by petitioners during Monday afternoon's hearing in Fremont County District Court, including those by a local citizens group, the respondents, Fremont County, the county's board of supervisors, and the intervener, Shenandoah Hills Wind, or Invenergy. Motions included a request for temporary injunction and partial judgment from the petitioners, a request for judgment from the respondents, and a motion to dismiss from the interveners. Lawyer Sean Shearer serves as co-counsel for the petitioners. Shearer says the county's wind ordinance caused an area of vagueness for wind projects due to not specifically amending the county's zoning ordinance, which he adds is required per Iowa Code. Iowa Code 331-3024. Um, specifies that any amendment to any ordinance must specifically identify the ordinance, the section, subsection, the subpart that is being amended or repealed. And it also says that after that amendment or appeal, you have to republish the ordinance as amended. The county um, has admitted in, in their answer to the petition, they have admitted that there have been no changes made to the zoning ordinance since 1960. The County Board of Supervisors approved a permit application to Invenergy for the Shenandoah Hills Wind Project in July of last year and approved subsequent road use and decommissioning agreements in late December. However, given their opinion that the wind ordinance did not amend the county's zoning ordinance, Shearer says there are several things listed in the zoning ordinance that Invenergy has yet to complete. Under the zoning ordinance, they can't get a building permit based upon this, this concept. That they've, that they've had approved. They can look at the special uses, which is section 14, I believe, of the zoning ordinance. Um, there is a list of possible special uses, but in order to get a special use approved, you have to go talk to the Planning and Zoning Commission and get the special use approved. I haven't talked to the Planning and Zoning Commission yet. If you want to get a height variance, you need to go talk to the Board of Adjustment. They haven't gone to talk to the Board of Adjustment yet. Shear adds the project proposal also falls short in the zoning ordinance due to not having blueprints and other exact specifications required for a building permit. Additionally, petitioners claim the road use and decommissioning agreements are inadequate, and Shear pointed to references to Page County in the Fremont County documents. He suggests this throws into question who drafted and formulated the documents. Did we have backroom meetings where... Um, the terms of this are being discussed between a majority of the board and they just come out and approve it at a a single meeting with no discussion of the terms or possibilities. Uh, The whole execution of these two documents, in in my mind, is is sufficient to, to move on to discovery. Speaking on behalf of the interveners, attorney Christy Rogers suggests repealing the mechanism in the wind ordinance is not as vague as the petitioners claimed and labeled the suggestion of not knowing what regulations it appeals or who it is for as frivolous. To suggest that that makes it so we don't know if the zoning ordinance applies to anything is just, it's just frivolous. That's not how anybody would reasonably interpret it. And in reality, it's very clear what happens when these two ordinances conflict. The 
more specific ideas in the wind ordinance about what exactly governs the placement of turbines governs. Rogers also says the conflict of height limits is null and void due to the zoning ordinance stating building heights and agricultural land, which she argued would not include wind turbines, more typically referred to as a structure. Addressing the development of a wind ordinance, Rogers argues the county complied with the essential purpose of Iowa's home rule statute regarding how many times an ordinance must be approved before officially being adopted by the county. The public got their three meetings. They were noticed meetings. There's no allegation otherwise. They were actively participating in those meetings, and that's clear. And as for the board, it was very clear that the board was trying to be very careful. They, they were looking at the terms of the ordinance carefully. They pled that they continued to revise it. Additionally, Rogers suggests the decisions of how to regulate come down to a political decision by elected officials rather than the court. You know, balancing the interests of landowners who like it and don't, the local communities, the developer, the state and federal policies, all of those are essential political topics. And that's exactly what Mathis instructs. It's not for courts to resolve, but that's for the board who has all those powers that we just talked about, who holds the power of the county in its decisions. That's who's supposed to decide those. District Court Judge Gregory Steensland made no rulings following the arguments and plans to review the motions and previous documents filed in the case promptly and sufficiently. Uh, per court records, a non-jury trial on the case is currently set to begin in February 2024. A who's who of KMA land political figures descended on Trainer last Saturday night for a special event. Numerous KMA land state legislators, office holders, and federal lawmaker representatives attended the first annual Southwest Iowa Legislature legislative dinner at the Trainer Event Center. East Mills High School junior Jack Sayers coordinated the event, which also served as a fundraiser for a scholarship for future legislative pages from Southwest Iowa. As a student, Sayers has served as a page in the office of House Majority Leader Matt Winstel. Sayers says the scholarship helps defray the financial burden for students, including food, housing, and transportation, while living in Des Moines as a page who may not otherwise have the opportunity. The money that we raise from this event is going to go towards students who care about their state, who care about their region, and hopefully with this money they'll be, go on to become experienced, knowledgeable, and compassionate leaders for our region for decades to come. And the idea of creating the scholarship stuck with him after seeing that he was the only legislative page from the immediate 13-county region in southwest Iowa. Sayers says he hopes future high school students can experience what he's called a life-changing opportunity. Being able to see how our government works, meeting the individuals who decide the direction for our state, and actually understanding what the legislature does was an amazing opportunity. And it taught me important life lessons that I will never forget. State Representative David Seek was among area lawmakers in attendance, highlighting the possibilities the PAGE program can create. Seek recalled when he first met State Representative Devin Wood, who came to the State House as a PAGE during her first year or his first year in the Iowa House. I had the pleasure of working with Devin, meeting her parents. I became very, very good friends with Devin's parents and Devin. Devin worked with uh, Representative Anusa and Clell Bodler. At one time, she did two, two legislators at once. Does a fabulous job, and she had the passion, just like Jack does, and became a uh, state legislator. The legislative page program also has a personal connection for State Senator Mark Costello, whose daughter served as his page two years ago. 
In addition to engaging with students of similar interests, Costello says pages also get to sit in on the multitude of debates held throughout a legislative session. I think they do, over the time, listen to debates. They learn. They, they grow in their knowledge and understand of where everybody's at. And, but they do, they do things like they, they get the bills out there for us each morning. They set the bills out that are printed. Uh, now, Jack's might have been a little different because he was kind of the, the special page over there. But... Uh, and then uh, they would, when someone wants to hand us out something, they'll bring them around. Individuals from both sides of the political spectrum attended Saturday, including State Auditor Rob Sand, the lone Democrat to hold a statewide office. Sand applauded Sayers for welcoming different perspectives into the event. I think it's good for me to work with people who don't automatically think about things the exact same way that I do. I think it's important that when we have senior meetings in the, in the auditor's office that nobody asks the question, well, how is this going to impact the party? Why would we want to ask that question? We wouldn't want to. And if everybody belongs to a different one, then no one's going to think to even say it. So we don't have to worry about it getting asked in the first place. Sayers says that nearly $6,000 had been donated to the scholarship even before the event began. Mills County officials are hoping to make the current Veterans Affairs location its permanent home. Veterans Affairs Administrator Elizabeth Richardson discussed purchasing the agency's current location at 602 South Locust Street in Glenwood with the county's Board of Supervisors Tuesday morning. Supervisors Chair Lonnie Mayberry tells KMA News the county has been renting the facility for several years from the current owner, who is now looking to sell the building. We are interested in keeping it where it's at. The location seems to work for everybody, and we'd like to just make that our home. He emphasized the county is looking to hold on to the building after hearing good things from the county's veterans and employees who use the facility on a day-to-day basis. We've got uh, zero uh, entry uh, access to it, so it's uh, easy in, easy out for our veterans. And uh, like I said, the location is great, and uh, veterans seem to like it, so we'd like to take care of them and our employees and Mayberry says the owners are asking roughly $140,000 for the building. Thus, he says the county has had a few different entries assess the structure, which is a remodeled house, to ensure it's worth the cost. We had a few people go through and look at it, uh, plumbers, uh, a few builders, and check a few things out for us. And we had some positive comments back on it, so we're going to keep moving forward. Mayberry adds the county has already allocated roughly half of the over $2.9 million in ARPA funds that the county received, including designations for planned renovations to the county annex building. Cass County officials backed the sale of county-owned farmland for nearly $1.7 million. On Tuesday morning, the county's Board of Supervisors approved the sale of land sitting adjacent to the site of the former Willow Heights Care Facility to Kelly and Christy Cunningham with Milk Unlimited. Supervisors Chair Steve Beyer told KMA News the dairy company came in with the highest bids of $13,100 per acre for the farmland and $6,200 per acre for the pasture. It was about uh, 117 acres of row crop ground and about 35 acres of pasture ground. That's a dairy operation just to the south of that property. Uh, They've been good stewards of the land they own, and they want to expand their operation, and this was a great opportunity for them. Myers says the county first took over the farmland in the 1870s as a dairy farm before the adjacent land became the Willow Heights facility in the 1970s. 
Over the years, the facility primarily assisted adult residents who could not live independently due to mental illness, intellectual disability, a pattern of substance abuse, or disabling conditions. Byers says the county began exploring selling the property after it closed in September 2021. changes in the guidelines for how adults with mental handicaps would be housed and we no longer had a need for the facility and we had been renting out the land. We decided to put it all up for sale. And Byer hopes the board hopes to find a public use for the building in the near future. Following a successful inaugural Shendig barbecue competition in 2022, the forum to revitalize Shenandoah is cooking up an encore, complete with additional teams and sponsors. Plans for the second Shendig competition were announced at a press conference at the Elm Street Grill Thursday evening. Shendig committee co-chair Mace Henson says more than a dozen teams have already registered for the Kansas City Barbecue Society sanctioned event July 21st through the 22nd behind the Elks Lodge in Shenandoah. This time last year, we had five teams signed up. We finished with 34 teams signed up. Two of them had to back out because of COVID. And so we ended up with 32 teams. This year, we have a maximum of 35, and we already have 13 teams uh, signed up. Among the returning teams, 2022 Grand Champions Smokin' Lefties Barbecue. Omaha area brothers Dave and Jim Fetters comprise the defending champions. Jim says they're ready for another hot and heavy competition. Every single day, every single competition's a fight. We're going to have a lot of great teams here that deserve all the respect that they have. And we're just always here to join and compete against them. Teams from Shenandoah, Atlantic, Clarinda, Colo, Essex, Quincy, Illinois, and Graston, Minnesota are among those already registered, as well as two high school teams, Big Blue Barbecue, representing Hamburg Charter High School, and the Grill Reapers from the Essex School District. In addition to Shendig, the forum is partnering with Shenandoah's Eagles Club for its sizzling Shenandoah Barbecue Throwdown June 17th. Eagles Secretary Eric Peregrine says it's a mini version of Shendig. We're scaling it down quite a bit from Shendig. We're only doing brisket. We're taking 15 entries. And the winner will get an Eagles-sponsored spot in the Shandig event, and we're looking to do this every year. Shenandoah Mayor Roger McQueen says the city is excited to once again host Shendig. I believe last year Shenandoah put itself above cooperation and, and, and welcoming to everybody that came to town, and I expect the same thing this year, and uh, I would hope that everyone... Uh, Appreciate them coming in and, and the efforts that, that go into having this here. Forum officials also announced that Chili Dogs Food of Fire and Blair will co-sponsor the individual competition categories, chicken, pork, ribs, and brisket. Page County officials are hoping you'd get a big lift, no pun intended, out of improvements of the county's annex building. Meeting in regular session Thursday night, the county's Board of Supervisors reviewed an option for a wheelchair lift at the county annex building through... Armor Highlander. Supervisor Judy Clark says she brought the discussion up after utilizing a similar lift at the old clinic for a Bonzi mental health in Clarenda, which she says could be another potentially cheaper alternative for increasing ADA compliance at the annex building. This seems like maybe the perfect answer for the annex. And just reading this, according to what um, the information came back, it looks like it's going to be less than $15,000 to do this. 
That's a heck of a lot better than the 61,000. The board has previously explored installing a different style lift, which would have included additional concrete, base, and steel work totaling nearly $50,000, along with other improvements, including ADA-compliant bathrooms. At least according to the plans she was given, Clark adds the Harmer Highlander lift would also be a more straightforward solution versus previous proposals with all the associated costs with the lift. I actually used the one at the at Wabansi the other day. It works really smooth. It's just it just lifts. No, you just get on it and stand and it lifts you up. The steps up there are on one side of it and then and then this lift and you just put your walk put the walker on it and get on it and you're lifted up and then you go outside. Due to some of the higher costs associated with installing lifts previously, Supervisors Chair Jacob Holmes suggested finding out more information regarding the installation. Clark says, uh, Clark says she'll gather some estimates on the cost of installing the lift. The board is also considering using American Rescue Plan Act funds to cover the purchase. The Iowa Public Information Board this week dismissed Sydney Mayor Ken Brown's complaint against the city of Sydney regarding a public records request and open meetings violations. During the IPIB's monthly meeting Thursday, the board approved dismissing Brown's case identity initially filed in late March alleging violations of Chapters 21 and 22 of the Iowa Code. In the complaint, Brown alleged that on March 20th, a city employee refused to share employee personnel records with him upon request, which he had alleged he was entitled to have as mayor. Brown, who was also the acting city manager at the time, had also alleged the purpose of a subsequent city council meeting March 22nd was vague and the prepared agenda misleading. However, upon reviewing the case, IPIB Executive Director Erica Eckley found no violations of public record requests or open meetings laws. Reviewing the meeting itself, there did not seem to be any violation in there based on what the agenda said. They were clear in the meeting. Uh, notice of the meeting had been sent out uh, 24 hours in advance. As far as uh, providing public records of a personnel confiden- uh, confidential personnel record um, that is uh, under Iowa Code, uh, a confidential document and not a public record. Eckley says the city responded and stated that Brown's request was specifically for copies of documentation of oral reprimands he had issued to city employees that are a part of their file, which he also wanted to take to his home. Under Chapter 22, she says that information is considered confidential. Eckley says the situation escalated and prompted the special meeting to discuss a code of conduct violation as listed on the agenda. Which led to which uh, perhaps was uh, made people feel uncomfortable, which led to a, um, a meeting between the city council uh, noticed under Chapter 21 um, to discuss issues uh, related to uh, the conduct of individuals with that. Eckley stated she was unsure what else the board could have said on the agenda without naming the individuals involved in the code of conduct violation. She added the dispute over documentation appeared to be a personnel matter between the city employees rather than a public records dispute. Help is on the way in spreading the word about happenings in Essex. Late last week, the City of Essex, the Essex School District, and Essex Community Club announced the selection of Tess Nelson as as its Community Development Director. A Farragut native, Nelson has served as General Manager of the Red Oak Express and Glenwood Opinion Tribune since 2018. Prior to that, she was Managing Editor of the Valley News and Essex Independent for 13 years. Speaking on KMA's Morning Line program Monday morning, Nelson says the newly created position was something she couldn't pass up. When this opportunity arose, I knew that it was something that it just kind of called my name. Um, I wasn't 
planning on leaving the newspaper business. I wasn't planning on switching jobs. But for me, when a job like this pops up, it felt like a once in a lifetime opportunity and I just couldn't not apply for it. As Community Development Director, Nelson's job is to strengthen and expand economic and community programs and businesses, market the community and school, obtain grants for growth and improvements, and serve as Essex Community Club Director. Nelson says she hopes to extol the good things happening in Essex. You know, being in the news business, you and I both know that we try to cover everything. We really do, but we just don't get there. So this is one way that, you know, with my position, I can take care of the promoting and the press releases and so forth and send them to the local news media. Therefore, they have them and they don't have to make the extra time to actually do the prep work themselves. Nelson also hopes to market the community. You know, when you're in a small town, you've got so many people wearing so many different hats that it's hard to just have one person have the extra time to do grants or one, you know, person head up committee to try to get some new development in. And this way, you know, they can rely on me to do that. That's that's what I'm going to do. Nelson's tenure began Monday. Her office is located at Essex City Hall. Red Oak officials have formally thrown their support behind updated regulations regarding food drugs in the community. Meeting in regular session Monday night, the Red Oak City Council unanimously approved the first reading and waived the second and third readings of a mobile food vendor ordinance. The council also unanimously passed an application and fee schedule for mobile food vendors. City officials started to formulate an ordinance after local food truck vendors and farmers market representatives suggested separate regulations for the specific vendors from the city's peddler, solicitor, and transient merchants ordinance. However, the rule was passed with one alter alteration removing a provision requiring vendors to at least apply 10 days before their activity in the community. Melinda Snipes, who operates a food truck in the community, says it would have been challenging to provide such advance notice for some of the events they operate we at. We were caught by twice with the Red Oak School wanting us to set up. It was like a two-day notice. Okay. So is that going to be a problem for us? Because a lot of our stuff happens last minute. It was a tennis tournament. They didn't have anybody to do food. They called us. So we wouldn't have had, we would have had our permit already. It just wouldn't necessarily have, because we'll get one right away. It just, we won't necessarily always have that 10 day notice before an event. The ordinance includes three lengths of permits, including for a day, six months, or a year. Red Oak Mayor Shauna Sylvia says the 10 day prior notice might be applicable for a one day license. However, she suggested leaving it up to city staff to approve or refuse or permit application. Just avoid that altogether. I think so. I think we just remove, unless otherwise provided, applications must be submitted prior to proposed start date. I think just move all of that and keep just the city reserves the right. The council also approved a fee schedule, including $15 for one day, $50 for six months, and $100 a year for a mobile food unit, with push carts, $10, $25, and $50, respectively. A special program addressing students' emotional needs has found a new home in Red Oak for the upcoming school year. Meeting in a regular session Wednesday evening, the Red Oak School Board unanimously approved partnering with the Green Hills AEA to host the Rising Hope Academy for the 2023-24 school year. The move comes as the agency looks to relocate the therapeutic classroom from Clarinda after making some programming changes. 
Ivan Gentry is Director of Special Education with Green Hills AEA. Gentry says the classroom is an area to serve students with the more challenging needs in their agency, which he adds is currently greatly limited in space. There are over 2,000 students right now in our AEA alone that have behavior goals, and of those 2,000 students, over 64% of them are considered uh, level three. So they'd be getting our most supports and services of any students in the, in the area. And of those students, there's really not a lot of openings, not a lot of spots for those students to be served. Gentry adds the classroom in Red Oak, primarily serving first through fifth graders, would serve up to eight students throughout the region, with Green Hills providing staffing, training, oversight, and administrative support. In his talks with the agency, Red Oak Superintendent Ron Lorenz says Green Hills officials like the central geographical location of the school within their region. He adds there are three or four students in the district who would be strong candidates for the program. That wraps up this week in KMA Land. Be listening each week at this time for This Week in KMA Land. And for more information all the time, log on to KMALand.com where you can also hear this program in its entirety. For the entire KMA News team, this is Mike Peterson. Thanks for joining us. Have a great weekend. This has been a presentation of KMA News.